Welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast, sponsored by Shure on ProSound Web. My name is Michael Lawrence. I'm the technical editor of Live Sound International and ProSound Web. And as always, I am joined by my tonight very my bespectacled co-host Kyle Turnside and my mustachioed co-host Chris Leonard. What's going on, gentlemen? How's it going? He's kind of goatee. Yeah, it's though. a goatee. It's not a. It's not a mustache. It's a, must- what if a mustache us- that just kept going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the one I had. I love that one. <laughs> What if someone just showed up with a chin strap, like a, a 1992 chin strap? I think you got to do it, man. It's on uh-huh. you. I, yeah, I think that's next. Okay, because yes. you've been you're sure running the gamut on the on the hairstyles thus far. So you know we're into a new year. Let's turn over some new thing. leaves. Okay. The hat's coming off for the listeners at home. Kyle's he's. Uh, no way. It's almost baseball season, so I did go out and buy myself a new St. Louis Cardinals hat. Perhaps you've heard of them, world champions, St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> oh, boy. So um, our guest this episode is my friend Carl Winkler. Carl is a uh, regular contributor to Live Sound International and Pearl Sound Web, so if you have been reading the magazine or reading the website, you have seen his wonderful articles. Carl's also the VP of Sales and Marketing Electrosonics, and we're really happy to have him with us uh, this evening to talk with us. Carl, hello. Thank you for being here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So where uh, where are you joining us from physically right now? At the Electrosonics headquarters in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, USA. Very jealous because you still have sunlight streaming in your window there, and I'm sitting in in a cave here. Yeah, it is kind of a cloudy, (laughs) drizzly day, but, uh, you know, we do get a lot of sun here, and it's a wonderful thing. High desert, man. Yeah, it's a it's a cool cool place, man. I love going. Just driving through there sometimes is so awesome. Santa Fe, Albuquerque, all the high desert is really cool to look at, all, all times of the year. And announce to a lot of people, it gets cold there. Yes, it, it does. It's really cold in the high desert. Yeah, it does get very cold. We've we've had some chills this winter, although it's been pretty mild. Can't complain too much, but we've got a little bit of snow, and uh, that sort of thing. So, and then it gets pretty hot in the summer, but not Tucson hot or Phoenix hot. Not like that. So, Kyle, most importantly, what's in the desert? Tacos. <laughs> Taco. <laughs> Taco Cabana. So I actually made a post on my social media about that this week. I was out on tour with this band um, from Arizona, and they were the first one to take me to, to a Taco Cabana, and I, I got to enjoy it just outside of Houston. Um, not that it's the best or anything like that, but it's just another one of those uh, TPM moments, dude. This is a taco per minute this is probably the fastest we've jumped into it <laughs> well uh so i think uh i think a good place to start carl is is can you tell us a little bit about your background in audio and i know that that you like a lot of people that are working in audio you know you have a, a background in in music and you're a musician and i know you play the violin yep. Um, yep. so can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how your path led you to where you are now sure yeah i mean i started studying uh, the viola in the fourth grade i think it was and you know the school orchestra kind of thing and I had some uh, some family that had studied music or done done things like that. My great grandfather, things like that. So it was kind of in the family, um, and kind of the path to audio was really through just listening to records. My dad had a lot of great records, including a bunch of Beatles stuff and some Rolling Stones and some uh, some Yes and you know, cool cool mm-hmm. stuff. So I'd be listening to this stuff, and uh, then I think when uh, I must have been in 
middle school or maybe early high school, but like the Cars first album came out. That was a, mm. that was a big deal. Really great sounding record, so well produced. And I remember, you know how I used to get records out and you'd look at the art and you'd read the liner notes and read everything there was with a microscope. You know, just everything you wanted to find out about this. What what struck me was the first three songs on the Cars first album all were three minutes forty four seconds long. <laughs> so it's sort of like this light bulb went on my head, like. Somebody decided that, you know, who was that? So I yeah. read, produced by Roy Thomas Baker. Who is that? I want to know that guy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's something that there was people creating this stuff. It's not just comes out of thin air, but, you know, music is, you know, music records were produced by somebody and recorded by somebody. My dad had switched on uh, Bach. And so it's like just looking at that picture with that guy pretending to be Bach standing in front of a bank of synthesizers, like, ooh, look at all that gear, you know? <laughs> like something just resonated with me. Like the combination of music and technology was uh, drew me in, you know? So I started reading stereo magazines. That's like the only thing I could get my hands on that would kind of tell me about the technology and um, played around with stuff. You know, listening to the Beatles, you could pan all the way hard left and hard right and you'd hear differences in the mix, like some things you'd hear only in one speaker and not the other mm-hmm. speaker. Mm-hmm. So again, it's like, wow, somebody decided that. They, they're creating this world out of the stereo medium, you know, things like that. Yeah, hey, all right. He's, you know, I still have mine too. I have my LP. So the cool thing about that you mentioned about records and, and the younger generation will never get it is we used to have to read the liner notes to figure out what the next band was we were going to buy at the record store too. Uh, of course. I mean, yeah. and, and, and like you said, uh, we started looking at producers and who was doing the records. Like that, that was how we found out about music. Now there's so many different kinds of mediums. It's cool that you said that because I've been re- revisiting a lot of my record collections and uh, man, it sounds awful. Like <laughs> here, yeah. here's here's the story. Like audio files that are like, oh, bro, vinyl. It's a way to go. No, no, not so much. It it it's it's an acquired taste, man. It really is because like you listen to the remasters now and you're like, wow, that's a beautiful sounding thing. I'm gonna listen to the vinyl version. And eh, not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, there's some great vinyl out there, but do me a favor. You know, pull it out and see if I, my memory is correct. The first three songs, three minutes forty four seconds. I just you know curious about that. You're putting yourself on the spot here. I oh, am, man, because, okay. you know, memory you are. can be faulty. You nailed it. Uh, good Times Roll, My Best Friend's Girl, and Just What I Needed are all three minutes and 45 seconds. You nailed it. Awesome. So, wow, yeah, that's that, impressive, man. That's, that's uh, what, all right, yeah. all right. All, all the cool kids are buying records because of the art. Yeah. You can't, see the, you can't see this at home, but I have, like, you know, a splattered paint record here. I have a teal, you know, translucent record here. But that's that's what all the cool kids these days are doing. <laughs> For the record, I am totally. sitting about 30 feet from a, a, a case of vinyl. I'm not going to get up, but I don't want to be the, the young gun who doesn't have vinyl in the house because I do, <laughs> just for the record. Yeah. Yeah, my daughter just bought an LP of Harry Styles for a friend of hers for Christmas. So cool. there you go. Yes. It's still going, you know. I mean, and the, the comment about sound quality, you know, there, there's some fantastic sounding records out there. I mean, when, when records were really, really well done, some of those like Sheffield Labs direct-to-disc cuts are amazing. Those oh, mobile yeah. fidelity, it's... you know, some of the half-speed master stuff out there. You know, when, when they really took care. But the thing was, it, it was a form of art. Like, you know, it's kind of a, yeah. you know, the thought experiment that I often cite is, okay, you take an LP like that, amazing sounding LP, and you... You transfer it into digital, right? And then you uh, you can listen to it, and it's it's identical. It sounds exactly like the record, right? Now, imagine going the other way around. It's like, take a CD, 
you know, put it somewhere where you can transfer it and then cut it to vinyl and listen to that, and it will not be the same. You, you can't go yeah, backwards sure. because that medium is, you know, it's got a lot of problems. It's it's an analog medium where you're dragging a needle through a groove, you know. But it was fast. It was high tech of the day. I mean, I remember buying records, you know. And you mentioned the Bach thing, and obviously mm-hmm. being a string player, like some of the the recorded string albums are are amazing, and they they use heavier vinyl. Like, yeah, um, they they knew their listeners were a little bit more discerning than those that were buying a Cars record. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But that that's a cool way to go, and I love revisiting them. Don't take me. Yeah, no, I super super <laughs> serious. <laughs> me too. I, I'll spin a record every once in a while. A friend will come over. We'll, you know, we'll we'll pop on some vinyl and. Maybe throw a CD on or whatever. It's like, you know, kind of get back to the days of listening to records, which was a thing that you did because, you know, we didn't have Netflix and we didn't have a phone with, you know, YouTube. I mean, it is different. Like you said, there's so many different mediums out there, but this is the kind of stuff that drew me in. And so I've I've always really had a close relationship between the music and the technology. And the career path that I've taken largely speaks to that because I realized, all right, well, maybe I'm not good enough to get into a well-paid professional orchestra, you know, which is a very rarefied field, mm. just like if you wanted to be a professional athlete. You know, it's like it really, really tough to, to get to the level where you can actually make a living doing this stuff. So I started, you know, I thought the technology would be a good way to, to stay close to music. And so I've, I've done live sound out there with the Air Force Band, and I've worked for Sennheiser, and I've worked for Electrosonics. So I've always stayed close somehow to technology that is related to music. So, you know, it's a shared vocabulary, it's a, a cross, you know, it's a overlap of some of the same people. Um, but it's just, you know, I love both of those things, so it's great to be able to do both. And so I feel incredibly fortunate, actually, to have a career that way. I mean, there's other kinds of careers that if, if money was my main goal, mm. you know, I, I probably should have done something else, honestly. I mean, this, this is not that big of an industry, and, you know, sure, you can make a living, and people are successful at it, but... Or you could go into derivatives, you know what I mean? <laughs> Something where you could just get unbelievably rich or, you know, stock market trading or, you know, other kinds of banking or whatever. You know what I mean? That, that was not my main goal. Of course, I'm happy to have made a living doing this, but um, money wasn't my first goal. It was really about the art and the technology. Yeah, that, that's um, it's something actually I was going to bring up anyway. You ha- you actually had an article recently on Person Web. It came out in January. Uh, it was called "Showing the Way: uh, mm-hmm. The Power of Positive Thinking and Acting." Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll put a link of that in the um in the in the podcast notes. But yeah. um, you literally just said verbatim one of your lines about how you know most people who are in this industry are only doing it because of the passion and love that they have for what they do. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and I I believe that should be true in anything you do in life. Like if you if you're yeah. passionate about whatever we want. To do the money will follow, but if the, if the money is the the forefront thing, then you know, uh, you know, it's it's just it's probably not going to work out, or it's just going to be much harder, or or whatever. But um, so now I, I that article you know spoke to me a good bit, and just good, um, good. and then more on the positive side of things too. Just that's you know, there's so much negativity these days, and um, yeah, you know, you talked about how uh, just recognizing like. We've talked about this a little bit as well. Like if you if you know you're at a point where you can kind of pass on the craft to, to you know to other people, you know don't don't hold that back. There's no trade secrets. Who who's who's keeping what from who? There's there's no there's no time for that. Um, so that was that was a great article. Well, thanks. And you know I've witnessed it many times myself and learned so many things from people that were willing to share, willing to teach, take you under their wing, and uh, you know show you the way. And it's like each of us have our own individual path that we'll find through our career. 
but I certainly couldn't have done it without some fantastic teachers, fantastic industry colleagues, uh, you know, just people that gave me encouragement or, you know, listened to my mix and gave me pointers or whatever, you know. I mean, it's, it just goes all the way back to the beginning with people that were willing to give something. And, you know, you're there to learn and to grow. And if there's people that are there to help you, then, you know, you're on your way. And so to me, it's like it's very, very important then to pass it on. And actually, I've told a lot of my musician friends this. Most of my musician friends play professionally and they teach. And that's something that I didn't really do. And I regret it, honestly. It's like the, I wish I had learned music education and, you know, was, but I've done teaching in other ways. So I can't complain too much. I've been able to do seminars and be on panels and write articles and, you know, but yeah, I, I kind of regret that feeling back when I was a young musician in college that, you know, I kind of poo-pooed the teaching part a little bit. Mm. And that was a mistake. <laughs> you know, I was wrong about that. I, I've, I've grown since then mm. um, because it's so, so important. It's like how – I don't know how I could have thought that, that as a musician that I had all these great teachers and why that wouldn't be super valuable. But somehow I just got it wrong, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something, something that, that I'm, I'm finding, you know – my whole journey in audio, I've just, I've had nothing but incredible generosity from people. Just whoever I reached out to, the biggest of the big dogs in the field have said, sure, call me, you know, let's talk about it, or let's sit down and let's talk. And it's just, I mean, almost without exception, it's just been unbelievable um, how free people are with the knowledge. I think there's a, there's a Richard Heiser quote where he, he was giving a lecture and he said, it pains me to give away in five minutes what took me 20 years to gather. But, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, sort, of, that's sort of what it is. And, and yeah. so... I, I, it's been such a huge part of my, you know, whole philosophy, and that's shaped me so deeply, you know, both as a professional and as a human. That I, I feel it's really important to try to pass that on and pass the torch, and you know, whatever things I've managed to learn or pick up over the years from people, you can't hoard that. You can't be selfish with that. So, you know, it's 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 something that I'm finding myself placing more priority on as I go forward professionally, which is you know to try to take the next generation people that are in school right now and coming out of school and, and starting to get into the job market, you know, what are we doing to foster them? What are we doing as active professionals to let them know what's going on in the field? And, you know, here's a mistake I made, so maybe you can learn from it. And yep. I know, I think, I think obviously the stuff that, that uh, is being written for ProSound Web and Live Sound International and, you know, the trade magazines, that, that plays a huge role in that. I think podcasts like this play a huge role in that. Uh, even the stuff that, that you do, Carl, on your, your YouTube channel, um, you know, hey, I got five minutes and I need to learn how to set up these receivers or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a video yeah. there and you can go through and see it. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, particularly the younger generation, that's kind of the medium that that speaks to them. Um, and that's how they right. ingest information. And so, you know, that's out there. And before we go any further, we got to talk about the uh, the Roadrunner. Um, oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, that was cool. You know, I mean, one of the videos we wanted to do, I, let me back up just a second. So, <laughs> One of my philosophies is like if, if we get a lot of people that misunderstand something or if they ask a question kind of over and over. I mean, in the old days, I, I used to say, like when I worked at Sennheiser, if a bunch of people call with the same question on the phone, it means that, that we're not doing a good enough job in our in manuals or on our website or some other place that people start to look for the information. But nowadays, it's video. You know, if people mm. are calling and they don't understand how to set up one of our receivers or don't understand the different diversity modes or whatever, that's well, because we don't have a video that explains it. And so – we try to make videos that are logical and easy to digest, um, but technical enough so that you know even seasoned people can come away from it and say, "Oh man, you know, I didn't realize they could do that," mm. uh, and and it's so easy how to set it up. So 
we try to really script those carefully. They're not so much sales pitches as like, you know, here's a product, here's what it does, and here's how you get in there and do it, and here's why you would do it. So we, we always try to approach it from that point of view. But, you know, we got, I need to write a script soon. Like, I should have written it today. <laughs> Didn't get to it. <laughs> it was always like a would backlog. Would you consider yourself... You know? Um, an RF Wrangler is that a proper term nowadays? That, that's he's just term. asking because yeah. he likes he likes to use the word Wrangler, and I right. think he's jealous <laughs> that that he doesn't have it in his job title, so he's trying to I find rarely, Wranglers. Yeah. I rarely say anything smart, but um, <laughs> Taco Wrangler. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, but I, I really like the idea of maybe even your comparison on the way vinyl has evolved, maybe relating that how to wireless and RF has evolved. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, we, we all know from experience, at least if we were working with this even 10 years ago, that it was garbage. It really was. <laughs> and then it's progressively gotten better. And yeah. uh, you, you have to be a special person for that. Like um, RF is, is not fun and it can totally misrepresent what you're, what you're putting out to your, your artist or the people, you know? And yeah. you work on some pretty high-end gigs. And I love... On the Electrosonic website, um, one of the first things that it said was um, high profile. Um, where would it go? Dang, now I just totally blew it. Um, <laughs> diver- uh, see, I was trying to be smart and it just didn't even happen all at once. But it, it's a very demanding place. I mean, yeah, everything is. is ran by wirelessly now. Yeah, you know, and one thing I would say, and I've observed this many times and been right in the middle of it in the heat of battle, but RF is one of those things because it's complex, because it's just out of the reach of understanding of, of some, you know, many, let's say many people. It's, it's a tough subject. Um, when things go wrong, it is often the first thing blamed. And it's not always true, but it's true often enough to kind of keep it going. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And, but I would say that even 10, 20 years ago, there was already very, very high-quality radio mic systems. Uh, they're very expensive, and they weren't well understood. You know, it's like let's say twenty years ago, monitor engineers didn't have to deal with RF. That, that, mm. that, that you know, it was wedges, mm. and maybe mm-hmm. in ears were starting to come in, but that was maybe not their job directly. These days, they do. So, monitor engineers, uh, you know, have had to learn a lot about RF, and and you know, some are better than others, of course. But it's one of those things where the demand for it has exploded, and and the price has kind of come down per channel. Uh, you know, I was working at Sennheiser when we came out with the, the Evolution, you know, wireless yep. stuff, uh, which was a real good bang for the buck. Sure had something similar. You know, this was sort of when things were coming down market and getting into people's hands and, and being a decent enough quality to get the job done for, let's say, for churches and for, you know, uh, up-and-coming bands, tours, opening bands, you know, that kind of thing. The top-level uh, big rock and roll acts, of course, were still using, let's say, modified Sony units that were sent over to England and, you know, tweaked or, you know, when I was touring in the 90s, it was uh, Vega units, you know, mm. and they were very high quality for their day. They were maybe out of date even then, but, you know, these these were high-end, high-quality systems and, and they were hard to come by and uh, people didn't understand them very well. So that that's a lot of what happened was people encountering those systems for the first time would believe more in like I, I say this a lot but voodoo and black magic like you know if mm-hmm. it doesn't work today it's because someone cast a spell right no not really <laughs> i mean the more you learn about it the more you realize it's physics it's math it's science it's you know and a lot of 
guys that are really good at RF. I mean, we've got some engineers here in our plant uh, that are this, but they're they're like ex-Navy guys that were ex-Navy communications or, you know what I mean, military. And they had to learn RF, really learn it uh, from the theory books. And, you know, we have to make special stuff that's, you know, no holds barred, no cost is no object kind of radio stuff. And so they understand it quite well. And so those are the guys designing the systems today. And James Stoffo's out there. He's an ex-Navy communications guy as an example. And he's a great teacher because of that. He understands the fundamentals. And so that's a big part of what I try to do is get involved with, you know, let's get people trained back to the you know, training and education. There's no reason not to share this. The industry moves forward when we all share mm-hmm. the knowledge and dispel the rumors. Like, you know, the, the signal gets worse as the battery dies. Not anymore, not for the last 20 years. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Let's get rid of those uh, kinds of old rumors. Um, But yeah, we see a lot of fundamental misunderstandings being put to practice every day with wireless mic systems all over the place. So I guess it was a couple years. Yeah, Yeah. Such an important thing to say because, you know, I think a lot of times, like you said, the gear gets the blame and it's actually just not being deployed right or it's not set right. Or, I mean, I get calls and, you know, the antennas are behind a wall in the next room yeah you know, or and it's inside like, well, a metal cabinet yeah yeah you know. <laughs> right yeah. right and so and, yeah. and let's not yeah. and let's not tell the techs about that battery thing because that's how i took home at least five to ten reams of battery as a because they <laughs> they would be emptying out all their packs every day and then i'd have xbox stuff for the next next two years because they were you know changing batteries every day well unless it was lucky sonic's wireless you know our, our stuff's always been uh battery hogs Honestly, so if it was our stuff, they, they but then the batteries you'd get would be dead, so they wouldn't be. <laughs> but that's uh, you know I I, I did um, I talked about it last year. We had James Stoffel on last year, and mm-hmm. I was coming up at that point on a big production of West Side Story, and I had like twenty seven, you know, wireless frequencies mm-hmm. on the show or something like that. Yeah. And I'm not you know I deal with I deal with a couple channels here and there, but that was the first time I really had that many all in one place, and it really had to work. Um, and right. I was like, I don't do this. I'm not an RF tech. You know what I mean? This is not. And so you're sort of confronted with learning this whole, like you said, this field of, of what is viewed by the outsiders as black magic. Um, and I, you know, I talked to you a little bit. I talked to James. And, and I have to say, you know, the, the basic rules of get the antennas in the right spot, you know, use your frequency coordination tools. I, I did seven shows with 27 channels, and I didn't have a single dropout. I didn't have a single bit of interference. And it wasn't because I became some amazing RF tech. I just followed some basic fundamentals that you guys were able to spell out. And so, you know, I think that's really, really critical. And I think for people that are listening that are scared of this, you don't have to be scared of this. You know, if you if you do your due diligence, um, and in Carl, I've seen you speak about this at, at AES, you know, there's, there's basic things you can do, basic frequency coordination yes. um, that will get you 95% of the way there with, with very little hassle. So, so the battery myth, that's a good one. What are some other common things that, that crop up that are, that are myth or get blamed when it's not really their fault? Well, one thing I just, you know, popped into my head when you were talking a minute ago, you know, blaming the gear first is usually a problem. But when mm. you get to a level of understanding deep enough, uh, you will know when to blame the gear because mm-hmm. the gear might be the shortcoming. And that's knowing the difference between, let's say, you know, a, a $1,500 per channel wireless and a $5,000 per channel wireless. You may well get away with a $1,500 or a $500 wireless, you know. Mm-hmm. It, the, the difference is understanding when that stuff isn't going to be good enough. 
Mm. And that takes some experience, and it takes understanding that the spec sheets don't tell the whole story, but they tell an awfully important story. You know, at a lot of these SynodCon trainings that I've done with, like, Tim Veer, he'll be the first person that – he's a, a sure guy, and he's very knowledgeable and taught a lot of classes. He'll be the first one to tell you, like, look at the spec sheet and see the minimum channel spacing that the system recommends. The bigger that minimum channel spacing, the worse the filtering. Like, he'll be mm. the first one to tell you. Mm. So this, this series here, you know, that has a 500K spacing isn't going to be the one you want for the 27 channel, you know. Right, <laughs> right, right. Theater performance, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but in terms of, like, common problems and, and things, rumors, you know, I've heard a lot of weird ones. You know, one of them is, <laughs> like, um, you know, yeah, we don't want to have to use a powered antenna because that, that causes latency, like, no, it doesn't. It has, I mean, that's an analog device. I mean, you know, radio waves go in and electrons come out, and it's literally instant. I mean, you know. So I remember when, when we were first starting to come out with guitar wireless systems, we got a lot of weird comments from, from guitar techs. They're like, yeah, you know what's really weird is like the farther away I get from it, the more latency there is. I'm thinking, that's, that's the sound through the air. <laughs> you know, but it's, it started occurring to me that, well, you know, they're using now an expensive high-end wireless. They've probably never had that before. Mm. They've never been able to walk to the back of the stadium and play with their mm -hmm. wireless. So mm -hmm. now all of a sudden it's like, you know, five seconds of latency or Out whatever. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> some ridiculous amount. They're going, wow, it's really weird. Look how far. I, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's you're experiencing that for the first time, but that's always there, right. you know. Right. And so it gets back to the fundamentals. I mean, one of the articles I wrote many years ago for Press on Web is the 10 things that can't be taught often enough in audio. And, of course, that's one of them. Time of arrival, you know, that sound takes time to travel. you got to know these things, and you got to be able to calculate it at least roughly to, to do what mm -hmm. we do so that you can avoid those kind of misconceptions. You know, radio waves travel at the speed of light. Sound, however, <laughs> you know, is way slower. You know, just those kind of things. Um, Trying to remember what other sort of weird things have come up. I'm sure you guys have heard weird antenna stuff. Antenna placement. Yeah, but, my big one is antenna placement. That's the thing yeah, that that's you know when one. someone calls me because their wireless mm -hmm. isn't working, and I I'm not the first guy to call. Let me just let me just say that. But you know if it falls to me, um, what I end up fixing more often than not is antenna placement. Yes, it is very very common. And transmitter antenna placement is something that doesn't come up often enough. Um, you know you get these uh, calls. We do get these calls. You know, yeah, we're using your little tiny unit, and it doesn't have the same range as, let's say, a larger unit. You know, why is that? It's like, well, my theory often is because it's so tiny, it gets stuck on people in crevices, let's say, you know. <laughs> and it's like surrounded by flesh. And so more of the RF is getting absorbed. I mean, it's the same exact 50 milliwatts, you know, RF power as several other units that we make. That, that could be the only difference is it's so small, it gets put in places where more RF is absorbed. So then that opens up that discussion. And that's a common problem is, is body pack transmitter placement and RF absorption. You know, people wonder why, you know, I'm walking around, I'm testing, I'm walking all over the stadium, it's great, and then they put it on a body and suddenly the signal's gone. Now, I'll, I'll, I, when it comes to talking about the voodoo side that we say doesn't exist in RF, I still swear <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that some bodies, people, uh, deflect, attract RF differently than others. I agree with Be you. 
Yeah. Because, you know, I, I remember distinctly on tour and it's like, I'll do a full walk of the stage with the IEM pack. I have a crystal clear, in them, you know, and then as soon as I put that pack on this particular person every mm-hmm. night, it's completely different when they wear it than when I wear it. And so, yeah, I, yeah I, I don't know what. what it's because Kyle's got that. a metal plate in his head. That's what it is. <laughs> it's, it's no, I think there's plate. something to that. I, I've heard that many times. And, I, you know, it could be their, let's say, acidity or you know the amount of right. our abs- basically it's going to have to do with the amount of our absorption that, that, that they present and uh you know I, I think there's something to that i don't know exactly what the science is behind it i'm sure right. there is some way to measure that um of course clothing have an effect and maybe you know the metal plate thing's not so far off that maybe <laughs> they <Not> have <laughs> you know there's something in their equipment or their their wardrobe or their guitar strap or whatever that you know one of the big things in rf is reflections um, yeah. The reason we have diversity receivers is that if you only have one receiver antenna, you know you can get phase cancellation of the RF signal because you might get more than one copy out of phase reaching that one antenna. So you want a second antenna that's seeing a different set of mm-hmm. reflections, right? So at any given moment, one antenna is getting a decent signal and the other one might not be. Um, you could do more antennas, but statistically you find that two is mostly all you ever need. Um, but it gives you the idea that reflections can be a problem. So, like in some areas, I remember a phone call one time, guy telling me, "Yeah, we're we're filming a movie and we're getting all these problems." Well, where are you? You know, is I've heard stories like, "Well, we're in a kitchen and it's just full of stainless steel," or "We're we're filming it in a school bus," or "We're <laughs> you know, in some kind of environment where set dressing put all these metal surfaces all over the place because it's futuristic or whatever." It's like, well, okay, that's probably it. Again, it's. You know, it's metal. It's going to reflect RF. Uh, and then, you know, Michael, you mentioned like antennas behind a wall, uh, behind mm. concrete, behind rebar, behind a metal metal plate. Um, same thing with like IEM antennas. You you have your transmitter antenna. You want to keep it away from metal because that causes a lot of reflections, like just like acoustic early reflections, mm. causing all these you know phase cancellation modes and nodes. You know, it's hard to because we can't see RF, and this is something that Stop always talks about. You know, we can't see it, so we don't know that it's there. But if you could visualize it, it's very similar to sound waves in the way mm-hmm. that it's going to bounce around a room. It's just not acoustics; it's RF. You know, it's electromagnetic radiation, and it has very specific properties. So the more you learn about that, the better off you are. Although it can drive you crazy because you're imagining, oh man, we're going to be in this place, <laughs> and I'm going to have all these problems and. You know, it's like, well, equipment designers, we're trying to design solutions for those problems. That's exactly what we do, is try to come up with the next generation of things that are going to help you to get your job done, you know? It's so funny when you when you talk about, you know, the pack placement, because I think that, that gets overlooked so often. I mean, I called you last year, My the band that I work with was working on a new IEM rig we were putting together, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we spent a lot of time getting the, the, the IEM transmitter antenna correct and getting the summing working and getting the you know, the mounting correct and then yep. you said you know make sure they wear the pack on the side of their body that's closest to the antenna and i kind of went like oh yeah like you don't think about that you know what i mean sure. and i yep. when i as soon as i told that to the band um since that day we have not had an issue um we've not had a single dropout we've not had a problem it's been rock solid um and because it's it's again it's not there's no voodoo involved here for the people that are that still don't believe it. Um, just you know, try to understand as much of these basic. And there's weird stuff. There's always weird stuff. But you know, I think if you understand the the basics, the fundamentals that are at play here, you know, antenna placement, reflections, that type of stuff, um, you can you can eliminate ninety percent of your issues. 
Um, no question, you know, and, and like I say about the tools, you know, so it started probably 25, 30 years ago and it's evolved ever since. It's like the idea of uh, software that will help you calculate frequencies to avoid, you know, intermodulation, which is uh, a form of distortion that gets created in these devices and, uh, you know, minimum spacing and kind of the basics of keeping your frequencies, you know, not uh, interfering with each other is really mm-hmm. what it is. So, you know, in the old days, it was people would do an Excel spreadsheet and, you know, put formulas in there and, you know, with a few channels that might be feasible. Uh, and I think Sennheiser was early on. Uh, Joe Cidelli wrote an old software program that was used by Broadway theaters and things like that. Um, these days, we've got wonderful software packages. I mean, IAS is a standard package that is kind of universal. It's got everybody's equipment in, in there in the pull-down menu. Uh, and it's an offline system. It's not meant to talk to the hardware, but it's meant to set up a list of frequencies that are compatible. And then, you know, Shure's wireless workbench, uh, Sennheiser's uh, frequency management software, Electrosonic's wireless designer. These, these all are similar packages that do talk to the hardware. And that's a major thing is to get to know that software, just like you get to know, you know, the software behind any other piece of equipment. Uh, or your menu structure within your hardware, or your consoles and all the pages. It's like, mm. get to know it, practice with it, get good at it, understand what it's doing, call the manufacturer and pick their brain and say, you know, I'm trying to use it and I'm running into this problem. We'll help you. You know, we've got videos about it. We need to do more videos. That's another video <laughs> I need to do. It never ends, you know. But So there's just amazing, wonderful tools. And, and I've said this probably in a couple of articles, but it's like, these days, if you're using decent quality equipment from reputable manufacturers of any type, console speakers, wireless systems, and it's not working, it's probably because you haven't set it up right or something. Operator you know, error. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The nut behind the wheel, as they used to say yeah. in the car business. You know, I mean, honestly, uh, it could be something like you ask for in-ear systems and wireless mics from a rental company and all the stuff they send is all within the same frequency band. That's not really a problem of the equipment design or even you, but you don't want that. You know, that's that's another one of the seven common things is band planning, keeping your in-ears and your IFB separate from your mics. And so you've got to ask, that's your experience. You've got to ask the rental mm-hmm. company, I want my in-ears in this band and I want my mics in this band. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they'll say, yep, we have that in stock. Or if they don't, what about the other way around? But don't mm-hmm. accept all of them in the same band. That's bad. You know. Yeah. Uh, one thing I ran into that kind of blows people's minds is uh, registering RF frequencies when you go to a different country, mm-hmm. and yeah. and yeah. the and the RF police and what <laughs> bands you're allowed to use and what bands you're not allowed to use. A lot of people, you know, glaze over that and they show up in Rio de Janeiro and they can't use their wireless packs and they wonder why. Or yeah. you know, yeah. we we had RF police in Germany at all the festivals. It was they actually had a van that they would drive around mm-hmm. and uh, you could get fines from that. It, do you know anything from like the FCC or anything coming up that's going to do any more opening of bands or restricting of bands? Not on the bands that we're typically concerned with. I think they're looking at some high frequency bands like 3.5 gig and things like that, 5 gig. Uh, but basically, at least we're stable for now. You know, the, the results are in. We know what's happening. We know what the repack is, is doing to us. And I mean, it's not good by any means. Could have been a lot worse. I mean, the industry pulled together and lobbied well back in 2014 and subsequently with, uh, you know, submitting, uh, you know, proposals and, uh, you know, supporting each other. So all that went well. We, did, we got some important things to happen. Uh, but for now, it's stable. I would say that you can count on, you know, what you see now in the United States 
for at least the next five years, which I wish it was longer. I wish we could see more over that horizon. But, you know, that, that window is shortened. It used to be, you know, you feel like things are stable for the next 10, 15 years. I don't know that we can count on that anymore. Uh, but, yeah, for now, I think the UHF band is stable for where it is. It's crowded. It's ugly in a lot of big cities. I mean, Houston is terrible. Miami's terrible. Uh, you know, Los Angeles. But there are open frequencies, and we know what they are. And there's equipment in alternate bands. You know, you want your comms out of that UHF band, mm-hmm. your IFBs out of that UHF band. You want to save that prime real estate for your, your money channels, IEMs, and your live wireless mics that have to be high quality, low latency. That's yep. what you want in that UHF band. So that minimizes it, you know, down to 20 channels instead of 40, you know, let's say. Yeah. And uh, I, so that's, I, I that's the other thing. Vegas, Prioritize. And, and yeah. Vegas was insane because during your sound check time, uh, your, all your bands would be clear. And then right before... <laughs> the the performance you'd have to recheck everything because everybody's turning their things oh, yeah. on and going. Yep. Um, that that's why I wanted to bring up the RF Wrangler because I think that's where uh, <laughs> your your pressure points are. Hey, during the day it was nice and clear, but here at nighttime, wow, everybody's firing up every RF unit, Mister Microphone they got, you know. So, oh yeah. Um, it gets weird. Festivals I mean, are particularly yeah. bad. You get a hundred dollar scanner now, you know what I mean, from Amazon, oh, yeah. and just let that thing roll, man. That's the first thing I turn on when I get into a space. If I got to work with wireless, yep. just let it go while you're doing everything else and come back to it. Because if you do it one scan, you put it away, you may not see that stuff that that only comes up once an hour or wasn't wasn't on, you know, at that particular time. And I think that's also an important topic, Carl. Can you address? I mean, I'm seeing. You know, our industry is we're pushing towards more more channels of wireless and, and we're moving away from wedges and toward IEMs and, and so we have more of a demand for clean frequencies than we ever have before. Yeah. And at the same time we're we are losing that space. And so you're talking about, you know, being on the manufacturer side and saying what tools can we create to, mm-hmm. to try to solve these problems for people. Yeah. Um so, you know, can you talk a little bit about, about that and, and how you guys are approaching that? And all you did mention something about a, a new unit you guys have out, the the D squared unit that's it's sort of aligned with that goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say there's three tools that manufacturers have been employing in the past few years to deal with this. One of them is uh, making equipment in alternate bands. Uh, so for certain types of equipment, let's say point-to-point systems is a good one. Like Neutra came out with that uh, Zerium Pro at 5 gig. You know, it's a cool yeah. thing. It's purpose designed, really slick. Uh, I think they were robbed of the Tech Awards a couple of years ago. <laughs> um <laughs> So we're seeing that, and comm manufacturers are getting on board and doing things up in, in the, the gigs, you know, 1.9 gig in the decked band and things like that. That that helps a lot. So just moving things around, getting them out of that. Everything used to be in UHF. I mean, everything mm-hmm. used to be VHF, and then it was all UHF, and now it's all kind of spread around. So you're seeing more specialized equipment in the different bands. That's a good thing. Uh, the next thing is that manufacturers are have been doing is widening up the tuning ranges. You know, in the old days, when I was starting, it was single-frequency units, crystal-controlled, and it was on that frequency, mm. and that was it. So if it worked, great. If it didn't, you're done. You know, so <laughs> I would tour with two and get one out, see how it looked. If it didn't work, I'd put it away, get the other one out, see if it worked. If it did, good. No, hard line. You know, and the mm. singer would always be mad at me. Why can't we use the wireless? Because it doesn't work. You know, we don't, we're not, we don't have enough frequencies. So frequency agility has been going on and getting wider and wider and wider. Uh, for for decades now. Uh, when I started Electrosonics, all the units were 25 meg wide tuning. And now we have some that are 140 meg wide tuning. You know, wow. So it's always getting a little wider. Um, then the third thing is uh, the ability to pack your frequencies more tightly. 
And that's also been a slow, long evolution. I would say that the, the move to digital systems has given us some new tools. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do want to say one thing here. And, you know, just like I remember the days when, you know, CD came along and it was perfect sound forever. So everyone had the idea that digital was perfect and there was no flaws. Well, it, nothing's perfect and there's always going to be some kind of trade-offs. So digital has new trade-offs that we can manipulate to achieve new goals. And one of those things is that, that with certain kinds of design approaches, you can pack a lot of channels really tightly. So we're seeing more of that. Uh, the other thing that you can do is, because a signal is digital, you might use it for more than one thing. Uh, you can certainly send metadata, which is kind of nice, and you know, do your monitoring, and it's precise. In the old days, it was analog. Like you would, you would have an LFO that would be slowly oscillating, telling the receiver your battery level, that kind of thing. Now it's like it's data. You just stick it in the packet headers and you say the battery is at X volts. You know, it's very precise. You can also send more than one channel of audio. So there's people that are doing clever things like, you know, you might have a, a high-quality send channel and a very low-quality return channel with an IFB or something. Uh, you can put two channels of audio in a single carrier. So in a sense, that's getting double the number of channels per carrier. Uh, but you have, have to look at what the trade-offs are. In the old days, you know, with analog wireless, it was like, you know, range versus audio quality versus battery life. You know, these are hardware designs, and you had to think about the trade-offs. Now with digital, it's like you might have four or five things you could trade off. You might have battery life. You might have uh, channel spacing. You might have audio quality, uh, range. You might be able to add encryption. You know, all things that you can do because it's data uh, rather than an analog, you know, signal. So that's what we're seeing. I mean, it's wonderful to see all this diversity of design approaches. So what you're looking at is different manufacturers because of their history and their emphasis on what markets are going after, what kind of performance characteristics they're fond of. I liken it a lot to race cars. You know, it's like mm -hmm. you know, professional wireless manufacturers are sort of in the race car business. You know, we're making stuff that's got to go to these shows and in these dire circumstances perform. So that's when the trade-offs get interesting. And you know, electrosonics is always known as like high-powered, battery-sucking monsters that are you know going to deliver a signal. But you might say, well, I don't want to stick. 100, 100, you know, 100 milliwatt channels in one room together. That might be overkill. So the other thing you're seeing is that a lot of convergence, like I mentioned about high power, that's one thing you could do with a wireless. And that's what we always did. Uh, and Sennheiser was always kind of like low power, you know, very selective receivers. Now you're seeing manufacturers doing both, you know, selectable power on the transmitter, selectable receiver tuning and uh, filtering and things like that. So Flexibility is the other big thing that all manufacturers have built into their products. So a lot of things to look at, you know? Yeah. And I think for anyone that hasn't seen it, the video that I, that I alluded to earlier on your YouTube channel, a demonstration of what happens to your range if you don't have your gauge structure set properly <laughs> right. on a wireless system. It's fantastic because yep. we'll we should put a link to it uh, in yep. the link we'll do. in the description. And, and you know... You start talking and you start walking away, and you can hear that when the gain structure is not set properly, it drops out a lot sooner. Um, yeah. And so, and, and that's something that's so basic that people can do with their existing rigs without having to go out and upgrade or buy new parts. Just getting that right, I think, can make a huge difference in the performance that they're getting. And guest star appearance from the uh, the Roadrunner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So definitely <laughs> check it out. <laughs> My girlfriend, uh, I told her that we were going to be talking to you, Carl, and she says, "Is that the guy with the Roadrunner?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> I'm the Roadrunner Wrangler. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There you go. You're going to fit that in there somewhere. 
So let's uh, tell us about the uh, tell us about the D squared, Carl. Yeah. So D squared is our latest introduction. It came out uh, late last year. It's a receiver system based uh, that's four channels and a half rack. So right away, it's a little bit unusual. Electrosonics, mm. we always make small things because so much of our business is with uh, portable use, like filmmaking and right. you know mobile rigs and things like that. You know, stick a system in a race car and and stuff like that. So. Uh, four channels and a half rec. It's digital, but it's backwards compatible with our digital hybrid system, which is something we were building for the last 15 years or so, right? Thank you for that. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the, the backwards compatibility thing, I don't think anyone had done it before we came along in 2002 or so with digital hybrid, which was a way of d- digitizing the audio and removing the compander from the equation, but mm. making it backwards compatible. We figured out we could emulate companders with a DSP, so you can select... Well, the idea was to not orphan our own old equipment, our 200 series analog top-end wireless. We thought, let's make the new stuff compatible with the old stuff so people can mix and match as they gradually transition. So here it is 15 years later. We thought, we got to go digital. We gotta, there's a lot of advantages to digital, but with that huge installed base of thousands and thousands of channels of hybrid wireless, we thought, it's got to be backwards compatible. That's not an insignificant engineering challenge to solve. To have a digital receiver that's designed to pick up ones and zeros or you know digital modulation, but still be able to pick up an analog FM signal and decode it properly, and even well enough so that you could do the decoding of the digital hybrid scheme. So that's what we did. Uh, it's cool. It's got Dante on it, four channels of audio, um, and then there's some transmitters that come along with it. There's a, a new handheld that's you know 24-bit 48k and a new bell pack with the same uh, kind of transmission scheme. Mm. They sound really nice. I mean, the idea was really to bring us into the digital era, and I think we did it with a unique uh, system. Chris, you had a question there? Uh, that's great. Yeah, no, I, I know we're getting close to our time here. I wanted to circle back because we didn't really complete the conversation about the career path side of things. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Um, so what? how did you end up at a manufacturer or multiple manufacturers, that is, uh, and what's kept you there so long? And so kind of like as you know, Michael kind of alluded to is that, you know, um, there's so many directions to go in this industry, and it doesn't have to be touring. It doesn't have to be on Broadway or, or doing corporate. It can be manufacturers. A lot. I know there's a lot mm-hmm. of guys, you know, like Kyle, who maybe in their later years who end up at a manufacturer. But Whoa. it seems <laughs> <laughs> easy with the later years. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you do later in your career. It could be something you do earlier in your career. So how did, how did that kind of actually come about? Yeah, I'm, you know, from the early days, I was always fascinated by the equipment and really kind of have had a, felt a kinship with it. Like, it's just, you know, a microphone. It's kind of a magical thing. You know, it takes sound and makes electricity. This is cool. Uh, and my, my interest in science, I guess, kind of got me there. But, you know, when I finished music school, I went back to graduate school for audio engineering on the recording side. I went to Los Angeles at USC, and they had a wonderful program there. Uh, and had fantastic teachers and got a lot of hands-on with the studio stuff. So my goal was to basically, you know, be the next Roy Thomas Baker or whatever, you know, be a recording producer, a recording engineer, a mix engineer. And I really enjoyed that kind of work. But I started getting a little bit burned out with it, you know, working in L.A. and going to these late-night sessions and the same song literally repeated thousands of times and tweaking the snare drum. And, like, you'd leave there, like, with this huge headache because, like, you know, I never want to hear that song again, you know. Um, As a musician, I sort of remembered the thrill of playing a live show and all the energy of it. And I thought, you know, I need to maybe look more into live sound. And, and I hadn't 
studied much about it, but I mean, the same fundamentals, gain structure and mic placement and, you know, all that kind of stuff still applied, but live sounds its own animal. Well, I happened to run across um, an opening with the Air Force Band out of Washington, D.C. And I thought, that's intriguing. I mean, the military, I have respect for the military. And uh, so I went out and, and uh, did the interview and they had a written test and a practical test and all this and they, and they hired me. And they put me with the Airmen of Note, which is a jazz band, a big band jazz group. Fantastic. I mean, I loved it. I feel still to this day feel very lucky that that's the group I got to, to go out with. And so I worked with them for four years. But I was sort of realizing that, you know, driving trucks, unloading and loading equipment and breaking my back, literally, <laughs> um, you know, I couldn't see that going forever. It was kind of like, all right, so this is cool. And I'm learning a lot about live sound, you know, the heat of the battle and how the curtain's going to open at 8 o'clock and it's got to work and all this thing. Troubleshooting, my skills got very fast. Um, but I met people who worked for manufacturers and they seemed to be like family to me. Like, I get these people. I think I might be one of these people, you know. And so uh, I started thinking about, well, what are the two things I love most? And I, I would say I've always been fascinated by transducers. So I thought, well, I should maybe go to a microphone company or maybe a speaker company. So I thought, mm -hmm. who, who are the best in the world? Sennheiser and Meyer Sound at that time. This is the 1990s. So... I interviewed for Sennheiser, and they offered me a position handling the Neumann microphone line, which was like, you know, one of the, the marquee lines out there. Fantastic. The product manager had just left. There was an opening. I happened to, you know, call them right when this happened and interview with them. So they gave me that spot. I was didn't know much about it other than I know microphones. I can talk mm -hmm. microphones. And so that blossomed into a, a wonderful job that was just terrific, getting to know the people in Berlin, uh, helping to... Uh, come up with products. I would say that if I could pick one that was my baby more than any other, it was the KMS-105, mm. uh, which is a tremendous product. You know, it was a lot of fun to sort of cook that up. You know, Neumann had a live sound mic, but it was expensive and delicate, and Sarah McLaughlin was using it at Tori Amos, but I thought, you know, there's a much bigger market out there. But nevertheless, it was sort of the first example, I would say, of coming up with something that was crazy. The idea that, you know what, we're going to make a mic that's $700. It's seven times the amount of an SM58. Mm. And it's a condenser mic, and a lot of live guys were really anti-condenser mic. Same thing about the rumors and the black magic, you know, that those don't work for live stage. Well, I thought, let's make a mic that will. What does it need mm. to be? Well, that's the question. What does this mic need to do? Have a high SPL, a tight pattern, needs to literally be able to hammer nails, you know, Many people don't know this, but that the grill basket of a Camus 105 is heat-treated steel. That's how wow. we solve that problem. You know, before they were made of brass. They would, they would, mm. you drop it and it would bend out of shape. So those kind of experiences really cemented in me the love of coming up with solutions to problems that maybe people didn't even know they had, or you know, sort of thinking the next step beyond. Like no one's asking for this, but if we did it, we might be able to make a dent. You know. And kind of what I was seeing then was speakers were rapidly evolving. You know, El Acoustics was out there with these fantastic sounding line arrays and Meyer sound, speakers sounded amazing. You know, I was fortunate to use these kind of products and I thought, the microphones aren't there yet. You know, we need to get it there. So now we see a whole bunch of different wonderful mics. Uh, and, you know, there was some before that too. I would say we stood on the shoulders of the AKG C535. That's a fantastic sounding mic. Uh, the Beta 87, you know. I mean, there's good mics out there. But that was fun to come up with something new, the new idea that, hey, take your studio sound on the stage. You love Neumann in the studio, right? Let's, let's take it out there on the road. And so that was fun. 
Um, I worked at Sennheiser for eight years doing Neumann and then doing marketing communications for them. Uh, and then I thought, you know, I'm from Albuquerque. My parents are aging. I need to poke my head around and see what's out there. And I remembered this little company that I'd heard of a few times over the years as being like the wireless gurus, but they're really well-known in film and television. And the bigger companies had never been able to, to knock electrosonics off the throne, you know. And I was always fascinated by that. Like, they're from my hometown. And uh, so I came out and interviewed for them, and they hired me. And once again, I feel lucky that they, they found a position for me and uh, started me on my way. And so I've started bringing that, trying to bring that same idea, like what are problems that, that are out there that maybe people don't quite recognize, but let, let's try to come up with some products that fill these unique niches, you know. So the first one was the TM400. Let's take our hybrid technology and let's make a test and measurement type wireless rig that people could use to align sound systems. Because I knew people had tried it, but usually you'd take an analog wireless and someone would like snip the compander out of the circuit, you know, with, <laughs> you know, make some jumpers in there or something. But it was still high noise floor, analog, uncompanded wireless. It's like, hey, we got the technology to solve that. So again, that, that's always fun. You know, I, I, I just, uh, I've had a lot of fun doing that kind of thing and feel very fortunate. I was uh, at AES this year and I caught the last uh, the last few minutes of a panel. My my friend Christian Juries, who's the uh, product manager and lead instructor for, for Rational Acoustics, was talking mm. about it. And he was talking about, you know, to a room full of college and high school students saying, like, you know, we're audio people. We love talking about gear. We love saying, hey, this thing does this well and here's a flaw in this product. He's like, that, that's somebody's job. It's somebody's job to that's sit right. there yeah. and to come up with what this thing should be. We're going to make a new thing. We're going to add a new feature to the software and someone has to decide how that's going to work. And so don't discount that as a career opportunity. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up for the younger folks that are listening. <laughs> um, and, you know, because, you know, we get we get a lot of emails into our podcast email, signal number two noise podcast at gmail.com, by the way. Um, and a lot of young people want to know, you know, hey, I'm graduating. I don't know what to do. You know, should I talk to a touring company? I, um, give a hard, hard think about yeah, the manufacturer. Yeah, talk to Kyle. Yeah, send 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 me an email. <laughs> after I after I get made fun of about my steel plate. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, you know the, I think you know someone has to make these things that we go out and use to do our jobs. And if you don't like the way that something works, you should you know put some thought into that. And maybe you're the person to to make things better. So, uh, Carl, thank you so much for being with us, man. This has been just a real pleasure thank to you. talk to you. Thank you for sharing yes, your knowledge. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great to chat with you guys. <laughs>